Hello, this is the Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. Delighted to say that Gregor Robertson is back with us today, as is Alison Rudd. So welcome to both of you. Alison, how are you doing? How are you coping at the moment? Well, I'm obviously very busy going angling and uh, <laughs> I've caught a couple of carp. Oh, sure. And uh, it's the centre of my life now. <laughs> no pond swimming yet for you? I hear that's something we can do. <laughs> Bizarre, isn't it? They have not thought this through. <laughs> uh, no, a little bit odd, it is. Um, Gregor, you're back. You've had a week off. Uh, obviously, you've been here, there and everywhere. Obviously not. Trip to the Bahamas, uh, <laughs> back home to Scotland. No, basically back garden, um, sunning myself and yes. having a little break. Nice. Nice. Nice to have a little rest as such. And Alison, how about your competitive household? How's that faring? Uh, we're probably getting more, not less competitive, which is, oh, really? is <laughs> which means in about six weeks' time we will implode, won't we? And, <laughs> no, but it's fine. It's fine. Um, to be quite honest, I'm not sure how households who are not competitive are coping because if you are competitive, it brings an element of adrenaline and excitement to the most mundane tasks. So. I've, as you know, invented football Scrabble, but we're inventing a new Scrabble almost oh. per day. Oh. And that leads to lots of existential arguments on what is and isn't allowed. And people care because they're competitive. So you can't have an argument over phonetic Scrabble and whether a word counts or not, <laughs> unless you care about the outcome. So you get to some quite deep deep, meaningful conversations. And I think that's what's kept my household ticking over okay in lockdown. I I bet. So uh, the latest Scrabble is phonetic Scrabble. That's what you're at? Yes. But of course, if if you have to spell everything phonetically, what happens if you have a great word that's just a normal word? Do you have to ban all normal words? And then it starts getting tricky. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I can see why it's very competitive then where you are, Alison. Just before we move on, Gregor, is your household just as competitive? What about, I don't know, a, a margarita off? <laughs> no, I'm the, I'm the winner, hands down at those. But yes, actually, uh, actually more in the fitness stakes. Uh, Susie, my fiance, is, she's, um, she's been furloughed and she's just taken the time to be. Hang she'll on, be delighted. Has she done she'll more be delighted. than you? Honestly, I don't want to. I don't want to tell you how close we were in the press oh, up sticks. Wow. Um, she would be delighted that you're allowed to exercise as many times as you want outside a day now. Go for it, Susie. I like <laughs> it. Okay, coming up, we'll get the latest on Project Restart, and we're looking back on the bizarre reign of Louis Van Gaal at Manchester United. All that to come after this. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Now, as the days become weeks and the weeks become months in lockdown, it's important to remember how crucial mental health is during this coronavirus pandemic. It's something Jonathan Northcroft has written about in the Sunday Times this weekend with the help of Liverpool's performance psychologist, Lee Richardson. Now, before we get into the full details of what Jonathan wrote about, Lee Richardson is perhaps a familiar name to some. And Gregor, you've come across him before, haven't you? Yes, um, he signed me for Chesterfield uh, back in 2007, I think it was. Uh, He had quite a short-lived managerial career. I think it was really a couple of seasons, just over a couple of seasons. Um, And we we always just fell short of the playoffs. Uh, He put together a good team and he got Alan Nill, who's now the Sheffield United assistant coach, uh, as his assistant for a while, and Scott Sellers. and they were good coaches. He wasn't a coach. He was that kind of a manager, and he was someone who was a, a thinker. He was a little bit different. You could, I say different, and different in the in the realms of uh, what a football manager is. And he kind of, you could, he definitely had that um, analytical side to him. And there were a lot of kind of team meetings and um, trying to motivate the players. That was his. That was his role. So I'm not surprised that this is this is the route he's gone down. Okay, well, he was a former pro with the likes of Watford, Blackburn, Aberdeen and Oldham. Lee and his older brother, Nick, who also played professionally, have created a mental health support hub called the Safety Net. It's currently used by the PFA, but he's now thrown it open to be accessed free of charge for those struggling during this pandemic. To access it, you simply head to aim-4.com slash safety net and after registering there's information and guidance on a range of issues including stress bereavement and dependency well lee richardson also explains how football needs to do more to tackle mental health he says there's a paradox about mental health which is yes we should want people to come forward and access help but it is also important to provide people the choice and the opportunity to self-help and to self-manage we need to reduce the stigma of mental health and there are several sorts of stigma the most pervasive one being self-imposed stigma the person who thinks am i anxious am i depressed what will happen if i come forward i don't want to accept i'm in that position so do we think Alison, that sport and perhaps football in particular are behind society when it comes to tackling mental health? Um, No, I think they were terribly. Um, When I saw we were going to discuss this, I immediately got a flashback to um, 2001. And I will confess, the reason I knew the the year straight away was it was the first time I saw Yari Lippmann and play live and uh, Ah. I was I was at Aston Villa and the story at Aston Villa was supposed to be about Juan Pablo Angel who had come in from River Plate and um, a lot of money record signing and he he was a bit of a flop initially and the fans didn't like him and it transpired slowly that he'd struggled to adapt. He'd been left to his own devices by the club. Um, eventually, it turned out that he, there was a significant illness with his, his wife and child, I think. But before people knew that, they just knew, all they knew about him was he was struggling to adapt to a new culture. And John Gregory was the manager. And he was sort of fairly dismissive of the idea that maybe maybe a player from another continent might just need to be given a helping hand, an arm around the shoulder, a chance to 
uh, find someone in the local community who who had the same background and and, and so on. and they, they, I mean, you know it was a case of you know well no you know they paid a lot of money uh, you know we might help them find a house what more do they want sort of thing and the, that I think was indicative of the of the whole approach to footballers which is the idea that if you're paid enough money you don't need any other help and of course. I think one of the, the the big myths that has been exploded in mental health is that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or anything that materially about your life is irrelevant. You can you can still suffer, and in fact, it's probably exacerbated if people make assumptions that if you can afford a nice house, therefore you must be extremely happy and content, and that makes it more difficult to to work out what's going wrong with you um, mentally. But I think a lot of a lot, with increasing numbers of people involved in the sport being being able to say, "Look, I've struggled, and this is how I struggled," and and also explaining to 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 fans, you can even play quite well when you've got um, mental issues. You just you just you just throw yourself into your sport. You you know you might self harm or do other things privately to to get through it. So just to, even if you're playing well, it doesn't mean that everything's going fine in your life so I think I think sport and football have caught up um, but I still think that there's the problems about you know that assumption if you if you paid a lot of money you must be all right and um, that's probably still lingers I think you know if you're if you're famous and rich what right have you got to have a, a mental problem well Gregor we'll get on to how you may have noted a change in attitude at the start of your career to the end of it. But it was interesting what Alison was talking there about Juan Pablo Angel and, and the struggles he may have had to uh, adapt to playing in, and living in another country. With some of the players that you played with, and um, I'm assuming you would have played with some players who who, were, who don't come from England or Scotland, let's say, um, did, did you ever see any of them struggle with adapting? Yeah, I mean, there's just there's numerous reasons that players can... You know that players can have for for having having difficulties in this area, and and that is certainly one of them. Yeah, I've played with players who've who've come from overseas and struggled to struggle to fit in. But there's it can just be it can be a a personal issue or anything that goes on in life. I think the the difference, you know, the, the in the in the time I played football in the early days, any discussion of what goes on in your mind was fo- only focused on motivation. I, I even remember in the youth team at Nottingham Forest, we had loads of kind of motivational uh, speakers coming and uh, it was always focused on improving performance in the game. Whereas now there's a kind of widespread acknowledgement and understanding that the rigours and stresses of playing football, of playing professional sport, and as well as things that go on in life in general, can have kind of adverse negative effects on on uh, on performance and on, and on an individual. So I think that is the journey that's 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 happened in the in the in the kind of couple of decades I played. And that's roughly the same time frame. Um, I just think that there's more. I think that kind of followed society. I, I don't think you know. I think football has come on leaps and bounds in that regard. But I, there's still a, a way to go. I mean, I. I st- you know I still speak to some people. I spoke to someone the other day who was a who was a kind of a coach in a, in a in an academy, a Premier League academy, um, and he was talking about a couple of players who who are young players as well who are having 
having real difficulties just now in, in terms of fears about being, perhaps being out of contract. Um, there was one, even one player who's scared to go outside and go for a run because of the virus. And, and you know, kind of, there's still a tendency to have off kind of throwaway comments about these people being soft. Uh, that still exists. There's no doubt that still exists in football. So we've come a long way, but there's still kind of there is still sort of a it's a macho industry, um, and there is a kind of it is a world where the coaching can be brutal. It's, it can be a ruthless kind of industry, and sometimes it has to be to get the most out of people. So it's a unique industry in that in that uh, regard, um, and it's football has improved greatly though. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if I should flag this up, but I, I will. The comments section after Jonathan's article on the Times website, there aren't the nicest responses. Um, some of them say, well, where does mental health stop and spoilt brat begin? Another one says another overplayed mental health article with someone else jumping on the bandwagon. Um, it's comments like that, Alison, that certainly don't help to have this conversation about the importance of understanding mental health. No, and I think that those sorts of attitudes will even be prevalent within the hierarchy of the football club as well. I did a big investigation on football club chaplains who um, go, well, they're, they're, they're often attached to a club or they certainly, uh, you know, encompass the club in their community. And they find they're really, really busy because footballers will come to them with their problems, which includes mental health issues, and they simply do not want, knowing knowing full well if you're talking to a chaplain, he has to keep it um, private, and you can't you can't run to the coach and say, oh, you know, your you know your striker, he might be a bit wobbly on Saturday, don't pick him. They don't. It's I think if you're in that sort of industry, if you admit to struggling the repercussions can be sudden and, and enormous if it's not handled properly and the people as, as Gregor said it's mainly people when they think about psychology they're thinking about motivation and results they're not not thinking about things that go much deeper so you don't you don't want your career to be stalled or your reputation to be damaged by admitting to having difficulties and so it's, it's a good thing that, that clubs do have chaplains attached to them that can offer this but they know the chaplains themselves aren't, um, you know, the, the best counsellors in the world. They're just they've just seen a lot and know a lot and are patient and will listen. But I think it's awfully interesting that the busiest, the busiest sort of vicars, if you like, in the world are the ones who pop into a football club, because there is, as coming back to your point, Natalie, people find it very hard to be sympathetic to someone who appears to have it all. You know, the dream yeah. job. We all, we all, we do, you know, everyone who's kicked a ball dreams about being the one that would have been picked for a professional club. The money's mostly good. You you have so many fans, you have so many followers on Twitter. You, you know, you go into a nightclub and have 20 women at your feet. I mean, it looks perfect, doesn't it? And that's that's the that's the problem I think, and which is why I really like this initiative from Lee Richardson, which talks about let's not make it all about having to come forward. And I think that can be counterproductive. I think if you're struggling, and then you hear or read an article where someone famous is praised for admitting to having um, some mental health problems, 
you you might then think, oh my goodness, am I only going to feel better if I have to announce to the world that I'm I'm struggling with depression or whatever it is that's, that's your problem? And it doesn't have to be that way. For lots of people, the very best way to recover would be to do it on your own, to be given the tools to work through either on your own or with your family or just, just very privately to get through something. And I do think, in a, in a way, I think we might have moved too far to that sort of stand up, raise your hand and be lauded for being brave, for telling people there's something wrong with you because that can put pressure on people who do not want to do that at all. That would not help them and be counterproductive. And that's, you know, it goes with the fame of being a footballer that everything, everything you do, whether you do something wrong in lockdown or admit to having um, depression, has repercussions that it wouldn't have for just, you know, an accountant in an office somewhere in Swindon. Well, I know that there has been a, a spike in the number of footballers in England seeking mental health support since the start of this lockdown. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, the PFA said that 299 players has had access support compared to 653 in the whole of 2019. And a lot of that comes down to the fears of financial worries, especially when you're looking in the lower leagues, for example. And, and Gregor, let, let me ask you about how you think attitudes have changed in football from the start to the end of your playing career? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the what was interesting about the, the, the piece that Johnny did with Lee Richardson was that he said, Lee Richardson said that really his, he has an office and his door's open. So it's almost all, it's almost all one-to-one. And that kind of ties with what Alison was saying there and that it's still a thing that's kind of, it's something that's, that players would want Behind behind a closed door, if you do a, I've sat through so many kind of uh, presentations and and talks from from sports psychologists and um, and you know it's f- full of kind of jargon. Often that's one thing as well. Lee Richardson said is that you know he's kind of come from a football background. He can relate, I think, a little bit better with, with some players. But if it was in a team environment, then people sometimes might crack a joke or you know not quite take it seriously. So he has it. That someone someone wants to see him, they can come and see him in the privacy of his office, um, and that's where you'll get the best the best results. And I think that's kind of, I think that's the most important thing. I still think that, as far as we have come, it's still something that players don't want to show a weakness. So it's not that a perceived weakness. Um, so that's still that's still not changed, um, and it's not surprised me to hear that you know the players who he's dealt with has been on a one to one basis like that. I just I've, on the the. The point about the PFA and, and stuff, this is going to be a huge issue because mm. we've got every year there's players out of contract. I've been out of contract many times, it's a stressful time. Um and this at this moment in time, the numbers are going to be enormous compared to compared to usual. If a player's out of contract, the chances are they're going to be released because the clubs this is particularly as in the lower leagues, clubs need to get whatever expenditure they have off the books. And so they're not only are there going to be huge numbers of out of contract players, really there's no guarantee there's going to be an industry, a functioning industry and clubs ready to employ them again. So it's going to be a tough time. You have to, again, caveat a lot of what we say here with there are other other swathes of the economy and industries that are feeling the same thing. But for guys in the kind of mid to late 20s, say, or guys in their early 30s with a, a family to find it, 
really they might have a few weeks more earnings and then after that absolutely a huge unknown uh, yeah. is going to be very 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 stressful for them I suppose, Gregor, it's it's more the uncertainty of not knowing when football is going to come back. So if a player is out of contract, they're not able to sign for another club because other clubs won't be necessarily making those signings. No, exactly. I mean, you know, if if uh, as it looks likely, Leagues One and League Two are going to be um, kind of called at this point, and they're talking about perhaps doing a, a mini playoff system. But there's essentially there's no way that football at that level can function without paying customers or if it does manage to we don't know how that is going to happen yet uh so in that regard it's looking pretty bleak of for, for for what the what the landscape of football is going to be like at that level and even even if it does function the numbers are going to be far uh far smaller in terms of what earnings are going to be so yeah hugely uncertain time for for players and, and it's going to be i think this is only going to kind of grow and uh, there's going to be a lot of players need support well, let's do a quick update on where we are with football coming back. And news this weekend that a third Brighton player has tested positive for coronavirus. The unnamed player, who will now self-isolate for 14 days, was tested on Saturday. Two other players, remember, tested positive earlier in the pandemic. Brighton players have been training individually at the training ground, and the clubs say this will be allowed to continue. Now, June the 12th had been the date penciled in by Premier League chiefs to get this season back up and running, but it didn't get a mention in Prime Minister Boris Johnson's address to the nation, making a possible return no clearer than before. So, Alison, when we've heard what's happened now with Brighton, do we really think that football will be back on the 12th of June? It does sound rather premature, doesn't it? Um, uh one would assume that if there is this slight loosening of mixing outside the home, then we might see more players um, coming through as having positive test results, which would delay it further still. It, I think I think if that if it's about waiting for a time when no club has every club has completely clear cleared its ranks of 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 the COVID. It will never start, actually, because I think there will always be a connection somewhere that makes sure that somebody somewhere has it. So it's about probably instead of just uh, this dream landscape where you have a sort of purity, it's not going to happen. So what you have to do is work towards uh, making the restart able to cope with the fact you might get clubs that have to take a step back in terms of um, isolation and how they make sure that everyone who goes out on the training pitch and then a competitive pitch is free of the virus. I, I don't know if that is possible, but that's, I think, what you should aim for. And the, this conversation is very has great parallels with the one we've had about mental health in that any industry you're in... OK, let's take um, the nurseries coming back. I mean, flowers and bushes and being able to go and buy something to put in your garden, is not essential, but it is deemed very important for the nation's mental health. But the people who work in those nurseries and garden centres, they've probably got the same worries as, as, as footballers about whether they should, you know, should they be at work? Is it absolutely possible to not get close than two metres to somebody else at work and so on? And yet you've got to sort of have this long list of things that 
that do greater good than the the potential damage. So I think at the moment the feeling is the potential good for football coming back outweighs the potential damage. But that leaves players as sort of collateral damage, doesn't it? And there are two main issues, I think, that have not been addressed that need to be addressed. One is um, the way it looks like black players will be more vulnerable if there is a case out there, they're more vulnerable in the community, therefore they're more vulnerable when they're on a football pitch. Secondly, athletes overall, they um, they have more vulnerable immune systems. That's been mentioned in the Times, but it's not something that I think uh, the, the players themselves know enough about to feel confident that they're not at more risk than, say, the person who's helping open a garden centre down the road from them. Let's not say that footballers are special and should get more medical attention than a bus driver or someone working in a garden centre. But there may be factors which actually do make them more vulnerable and they, rather than them being sort of hastily brushed under the carpet, they need to be researched, explored and talked about before I think that most players will feel comfortable about saying, yeah, OK, we feel that the science is there, we can do this for the, the people who, who we know we can make happy. It's interesting you mentioned that the health aspect in the sense of the vulnerability of, of footballers. I was having a conversation with the former Liverpool, Fulham, Tottenham midfielder Danny Murphy and I, I put that question to him uh, about the susceptibility of, of sports people and he scoffed at it and said, I've, I've never been ill when I played so I can't see why it would affect us. And it, it was a bit strange because you felt like he was ignoring what medicine, what science is saying. It's an interesting point to, to bring up, I think, Alison. Well, there's lots of reasons why he's never been ill in his life. and he, Maybe he's just very lucky and he has a particularly strong immune system that can cope with being an athlete. But I think the biology says that if you um, push your body to those extreme levels that extremely fit athletes do, it does make you, it does give you an immunity. Um you know, we used, to, we used to joke about the number of cyclists who seem to have asthma, but it actually, like, well, they're pretending so they can take drugs. Well, no, they weren't pretending, most of them. You do actually end up getting conditions if you are um, really punishing your body. So, and yes, if, you, if you're a footballer, you're so pampered in, compared to the rest of us in terms of your health. You know, most Premier League clubs will know everything about your body. You know, they take samples of all bits of you all the time and you're looked after and the minute someone sneezes, you know, they're, they're concerned about it, which doesn't happen normally. So footballers will look healthy because they are looked after better. But with COVID, we have no way of looking after you better with that. If it gets you, it gets you and it's going to get you bad if you've got a vulnerable immune system. Gregor, this is a subject obviously we've been talking about for a long, long time about when and if football can return. So 12th of June is the date that is still pencilled in. We know that. Um, we've seen in Germany they're still pushing ahead with the Bundesliga and that's the first and second divisions. And we know that Dynamo Dresden has put its whole team into quarantine after players were tested positive there for it. Um, where do you stand on it now when you hear all of this stuff that we're hearing? When people make points, I think one of the biggest problems when when you know various chief executives and directors of clubs are making good arguments at the moment, I think there's other clubs who kind of are drawing lines, think acting as if because the team are perhaps relegation threat and that that's that's their 
that's the uh, the reason for making making a point. Such as, you know, I think Christian Christian Perslow, the Aston Villa the CEO, I think he, um, yeah. you know, he said that Jack Jack Grealish, John McGinn, and maybe Tyron Ming say they, those three players fell to the injury, uh, fell to COVID. Sorry, which is going to be treated as an injury, which is so bizarre. Uh, you know, th- that's there's no there has to be some kind of line has to be a line in the sand for how how many players or you know that that's going to put a stop to games. And I, I think the the Dresden uh, example was the players were quarantined because that was the the ruling of the of that kind of area of Germany. That was I don't think that was really you know a footballing decision. It was that's because of the area in Germany they live in. That was the, that was the rule. So and they're still acting as if that's just going to kind of pause. That's going to postpone two games for them. So. There are huge, you know, so many valid questions, and and I think it's just so unhelpful that you know I saw Tyrone Mings tweeting today that um, you know if someone, if a player towards the top end of the table says makes a point about you know questioning the safety of returning, then you said you know that's some people would the response would be oh that's a that's a reasonable point. Whereas if somebody like him in the bottom, who's who's in the bottom three or facing relegation makes the same point. Mm-hmm. A finger's pointed at him to say, you know, you're trying to get out of rele- relegation. Yeah. And there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conflicting sort of interests. And I don't, I think, it's, I think players should be able to voice these, these queries and questions and, and look for some sort of, they'll never be guarantees. That's the problem. We've said this before. There's no guarantee. So as Alison said, it's all about risk and reward. It's about, Minimising the risks as, as much as possible and making sure the players are happy with that for a start, and the reward is to have to make sure that the clubs are kind of financially viable in at least the short term um, and could pay pay their players and pay their staff and and there's not a kind of a serious black hole opening up for for football that there is there is further down the down the league. So you know when people say a lot of people always say you know the we can't we, we can't go back we can't play until it's safe to do so uh, that's a really stupid expression now because it will never be safe not in the short term anyway it's never going to be safe it's about making it as safe as possible and making sure the players are okay with that and that's the biggest hurdle i think now i think as alison said there are some there are some serious worries uh, among players and they've got to people have got to kind of assuage their fears you know Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Now, Louis van Gaal has been speaking about his departure from Manchester United in 2016, and it makes for interesting reading. Sacked just two days after winning them the FA Cup, their first trophy since Alex Ferguson's departure, and replaced by Jose Mourinho, who had previously been his number two at Barcelona. Van Gaal is in no doubt where the blame lies, but it's nothing to do with Mourinho. In Manchester, he says, there was a noose around my neck for six months. I was put down in public and yet the players had so much confidence in me that we had to finish the FA Cup final with 10 men and still won. My wife had known it for six months, but women also have much better feelers for that. But I never expected to be killed by people internally. In any case... A great experience, but if you stay upright as a coach in such a six-month situation, then you must have something to offer. I blame Ed Woodward, my CEO at Manchester United, much more than Mourinho. In my view, Woodward is the evil genius. Now, Alison, of course, we'll agree with what Van Gaal said about his wife and that women have much better feelers than men. <laughs> That's just a given, obviously. But should should uh, Van Gaal feel hard, hard done by, by what happened at United? Well, probably, yes. Although I think most Man United fans will be thinking he's being very generous with his assessment of Woodward as a genius, whether he's evil or good with it. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that Edward Wood is far from a genius in the transfer market. And that was partly the problem, as it is with every manager post-Ferguson uh, at United, is 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 the transfers and... Yeah, Mourinho would would probably agree with with Van Gaal that it was it was you know not 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 being able to buy who you want and balancing all the vested interests and so on. I I think Van Gaal is a hard one to explain because he seemed to go from being himself a football footballing genius to someone who just had no. Uh, emotional intelligence whatsoever and was unable to sort of grasp how the Premier League worked. You know, the style of football, the fan base. Um, If he'd he'd gone into Old Trafford with the remit, can you make uh, Manchester United the most boring team anyone's ever seen? Uh, Then then he would say he did a fantastic job. I mean, they they had those stats when he was there were ridiculous. They had, you know, they were on the par with Stoke and Norwich on how many shots the team made. They made more passes backwards than anyone else in the league. This was not <laughs> this is not what um a team like Man United is supposed to employ someone with those um principles. And yet and yet he was always a surprise. It wasn't like he was just dour and boring himself. The football was boring, but he was always completely sort of fascinating. Um and you couldn't predict what sort of odd thing he was going to come up with. So it was a terrible experiment, but um, I think calling Edward Wood a genius is the oddest part of all that. <laughs> well, you talk about uh, some of the highlights of Van Gaal. He was certainly entertaining, arguably off the pitch more than, than on the pitch. He, um, he called his defender Chris Smalling Mike Smalling. He pulled a reporter's hair during a post-match interview. He screamed Louis Van Gaal's army in a press conference, called a journalist a fat man after disagreeing with one of his questions. And of course threw himself on the floor at Old Trafford during a game with Arsenal to make a point to the fourth official, Mike Dean. I mean, when you list those sorts of things, surely we, we miss him, don't we, Gregor, for those antics? <laughs> he was box office. You know, I, I think there's some parallels with Mourinho. It's kind of these guys, these two huge figures of, of, uh, of football, like amazing catalogue of work behind them, successes, uh, massive characters, 
could be real kind of absolute box office, as I say. But when in recent in recent years, and certainly that period at Manchester United for with with Van Gaal and Mourinho in in recent times, they just feel like yesterday's men. I just think that you know all of that off off field stuff was great fun, uh, and they're great characters. And the Premier League is better off for having people like that in it. But the evidence on the pitch tells you otherwise. I think that you know, as you said, the football was was so boring. <laughs> uh, and you know, there were, he, he had there was a lot of mitigating factors. You look at you know when he took over from boys. The, some of the same issues about the structure of the club and the, the signings. If looking at some of his signings, Luke Shaw, Herrera, Rojo, Di Maria, uh, Memphis Depay, Darmian, Schneiderlin, Schweinsteiger. There really not been not many hits from them, um, and I, I don't think that's down to him. So, you know, there were there were some issues. There's huge issues at, at Manchester United, and and that's you can't lay all of that at Van Hal's door, but. Um, at the same time, the way he coached them and the football that, that Manchester United played under him was soporific. Mm. And of course, Alison, you've got to get on with the fans. And he sort of had this antagonistic relationship with them. He often called them out at various times. That's what I mean about not really having any emotional intelligence. <laughs> Do you... Did he did he not read about Man United before? <laughs> I mean, does he not know where he is and who they are and how it all works? I I find that incredible. It, does it mean that he has an enormous ego and thinks that's how he came across, wasn't it? He came. I suspect he was a really nice bloke, but he came across as having a huge ego and felt I'm in charge. Why on earth would you criticise me? I've come in to save you, and. I really can't be doing with all this nonsense that's going around the periphery of it. And yet he was giving them very boring football and then telling the fans, your expectations are too high. You can't yes. be man- manager of Manchester United and tell the fans your expectations are too high. It does, it does, doesn't happen. So, And he's clearly not a stupid person. So I am struggling to understand what... I, I wonder if maybe, because he was coming in as a rescue mission from David Moyes, I wonder if perhaps he felt he had uh, more rope. You know, he had he had longer in which to write things, and that any 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 positive tweaks would be greeted as the saviour, rather than people thinking, "Oh, thank goodness, David Moyes' year is over. We've got a proper manager of of international stature who'll be more like Fergie." I, I suspect that was the the problem. Well, he did have this big brash personality. He, probably still does as well I'm sure and it it seemed as though you mentioned stature that because of that he'd be able to embrace the stature of Old Trafford the stature of Manchester United uh, as well so he seemed the perfect fit but Gregor it just it just didn't work why did you think why didn't it work I think some of those reasons I gave I think that you know he he, he's he's mentioned the 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 power that that Ed Woodward wields and the sort of issues in the way that players were uh, were recruited, you know, he, you know, I think it's quite easy for him now to to say that, say when he signed Angel uh, Di Maria, that he was someone who was lowered down uh, his list of wingers that he wanted to sign. He said, I think he said recently he wanted to sign him seven years earlier when he was at Easy Dalkamar, rather than at that point in time. Um, so you know, at the if you look at those signings, that's not all his fault. 
So that's mm. the first thing you have to say. But again, the way that the team played, um, I kind of flipping between formations, so pedestrian and slow the football. Uh, and I, I think Alison sort of searching for the for why he thought he thought he could. I don't know why he thought he had more time. I think it's just ego with these people. I honestly think that someone like him and Mourinho, their egos are so enormous, and they they feel when they walk in the door that they're sort of sheer force of personality and. And they have had huge success in the past too. Like I say, I just think that the game moved on and they were slightly left behind. I think that's the Are they same sort of living Mourinho off their now. name, would you say? Is that yeah, what I think, this is all down to? Mm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, he's retired now and I think Mourinho, as I say, I think there's there's, there's some similarities to be to be drawn between the two of them. I think that the, the way that he sets up his team to play now feels like from another era. Uh, so part of that is to do with the way that the game evolves, and part of it is to do with I, I don't know. I feel like they kind of they almost struggle to come to an acceptance of that fact as well. So they almost row against the tide, and they they feel you know I'm I'm Louis Van Hal or I'm Josie Mourinho. What do you guys know? And I think that kind of comes out and that that showed in in the, some of the press conferences and and uh, and some of the decisions he made on the pitch. I mean, I was looking back. I remember one. And he put, I think he took off Rashford at half time against, I think it may be against Liverpool. No, it was against Spurs, and he put Ashley Young uh, centre forward. And and that was, I think that was when the kind of almost the straw that broke the camel's back. And you know, he talked about he, just this week about how the players had supported him and stuff. I don't think that was true either. I think he was delusional there. I think the players really thought, I think they were bored by training, and they looked at some of the decisions he made and thought. And the football they were being asked to play, and thought, "What is this guy doing?" So I think he's also deluding himself slightly. <laughs> well, we've we've listed some of the antics of Van Hal then, and both of you, no doubt, would have encountered some characterful managers. Um, what's your favourite bizarre moment from a gaffer down the years, Alison? You've got one. It, well, it's I think it's because we've been talking about Louis Van Gaal that um, I've thought of this, but. Um... Because I see similarities in the sort of the way they came in is Felix Magat. Do you remember him? He took over at Fulham, which is just down the road for me. So there's a lot I could say about Felix (laughs) Magat, but you can't you can't really start a conversation about him without talking about him telling Breda Hangeland to put a big lump of cheese on his injury, and that would and that would solve everything. And he even got he even got someone in the staff to go to the supermarket to go and buy the biggest lump of cheese he could find. And then he late a few years later he admitted that is the advice, but then said that the English media was silly with it. I mean, how, what, <laughs> what is the British media supposed to do with a manager who tells the player that they'll come back? Uh, quicker and stronger and able to walk better if they have cheese all over them. I mean, it's ridiculous, man. But in, on a serious level, that you wouldn't you wouldn't mention that, would you, if he was a really nice guy and got results and it was just a quirk of his character. But um, he he, uh, he 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 was he wasn't a very nice person, really. He was really really strict and uh, used to make the players do odd things in training, either not move at all or or play far too long to punish them. I've no idea why he lasted as long as he did, but um, I'm I'm sort of glad in a way that the results were bad and that you can't win with that sort of attitude. So Mm. that's good. 
Yeah, he sent, did sound very bizarre. Um, Gregor, before we get your bizarre moment from a manager, did you ever have to put cheese on an injury? <laughs> uh, no. Um, I would have tried it if I had any chance of working the number of injuries I had. <laughs> oh. uh, no, certainly not. I think... I think if it was any, if we're talking about a manager I played for, I mean, it would probably be Joe Kinnear. Um And look, if you, when we saw the stuff happened at Newcastle about him sort of naming players by their wrong names, you know, I think he called Zogby Insomnia, and the rants in the press conferences, the expletive laden rants. I, I saw this and watched all this and thought, you know, and I'd seen it before. He was. He was a character, and remember when he when he first came to Nottingham Forest, he we were relegation threat, and then he kept us up. And the final day, I think he'd said if he kept us up, he'd go out into the centre circle and and down a pint. So he he did that. So he was kind of so friendly with the fans. And then fast forward a few months, and he was openly calling them morons uh, in the press. <laughs> like our jaws were just hitting the floor, thinking, "What are you doing?" And uh, he's. Needless to say, he got the sack quite uh, not long after that. So I think for someone I played played for, I think it would be Joe Kinnear. But again, looking at the sort of link to Louis Van Halen, that his last game, that FA Cup final, you really have to look, you have to go quite far to go to look um, beyond Alan Pardew's dance on the touchline. Uh. I think you know for like for a meme for a, for memeable uh, footage and you know survived down the years on Twitter anytime you see something and you see Pardew's uh, dance coming out and um, he's kind of dad dancing in that FA Cup final I think I've not seen much many more uh, bizarre things going on in the touchline than that <laughs> uh, some lovely memories there that is it for now many thanks to Gregor and to you Alison as well you may find yourself with more time on your hands in the coming weeks, so do remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. All you have to do is search The Times subscription for more information. And we will be back with you on Thursday for the very latest game podcast. Keep safe in the meantime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.